Australia is the best country on the planet and we should still be building cars. You might believe that entire statement, you might believe parts of that statement or none of it, but that's the question we're looking at in this week's episode of the Cars Guide podcast. And it seems based on some recent news that there might be life in the old girl yet when it comes to Australian manufacturing. Thank you for joining us for this episode. It's episode 201 of the Cars Guide podcast. I'm obviously here filling in for your usual host, James Cleary. And joining me is editor Mel Flynn. G'day, Matt. And also amazing contributor and also using those initials, Andrew Chesterton. You might believe part or all of that statement. It's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, this week we are basically having a look at a story that's frankly been going a little bit nuts for us. It's one that you've written, Chesto, about the future of Aussie automobile assembly and manufacture in Australia. And yeah, it seems there is a future. And then we'll talk about some of the Aussie-made cars, uh, either entirely uh, designed, developed and built in Australia or just assembled in Australia that we've owned or still own and we'll also touch on some of the feedback after last week's bonanza 200th episode so thanks for watching and stay tuned there's plenty to come if you're watching on youtube don't forget you can jump ahead if that's what you want to do now the question i have for you guys is uh we need to forget ford and holden is that right? Is that the correct statement? Because uh, can't Ford, forget Ford. Ford's still around. Ford's still around, yes, but it's not the Not Ford, as we know it? Not the Ford that um, we all loved for so long, um, unless you really love the Ford Ranger, um, and a lot of people do. It's a very good ute. Um, but, yeah, I think that Ford and Holden, personally, we need to just leave that in the past. Now, we, there's a lot of, um, I guess... There's a lot of reminiscence out there about Ford and Holden and what they mean or meant for Australia. Um, at the moment, we're seeing a real explosion in um, prices for collectible versions of Fords and Holdens because people are harking back to that history. They realise this is never going to happen again. We're never going to have Australian-made cars for Australian purposes. And they were two of the most influential brands Um in the country over well, nearly a century, right? So there's, I guess the thing is, Toyota was also here. Mitsubishi was also here. There were a bunch of other brands that assembled cars in Australia. Um, but Chester, this story that you've put together uh, titled Ford and Holden 2.0, the new Australian made cars that will make the Commodore and Falcon look like dinosaurs. Um, it goes a long way to showing us that the future is bright for car manufacturing in Australia, perhaps more accurately for the manufacture of light commercial vehicles and utes locally. Now, in this podcast, we're just going to go through each of the cars or vehicles or brands and then also have a look at some of the other stuff that's happening in the Australian automotive industry. Um, Chesto, do you want to kick us off with an overview of the H2X Warrego? Yes. So, In fact, I'm actually going to start with a bit of a caveat, if you don't mind. So over the course of this pod, we'll no doubt be talking about the end of Australian manufacturing as it pertains to Ford and Holden, this launch of this new era of manufacturing some of the mistakes that might've been made along the way, but I just want to separate all the people from this story first up. Good I point. read a lot about the closure of Ford and Holden, uh, and in fact, two of the Holden factory in its final weeks and met a lot of the employees, et cetera. 
it made it was heartbreaking. You know, they, they were great minds and great people, and what happened there was was a was a tragedy. So anything that we say about Holden and Ford manufacturing in this country has nothing to do with the people involved in it because they they were all fantastic. But it did beg the question at the time. What happens to this amazing bank of knowledge and skills and engineering know-how once these brands depart Australia? Does it just fall into a vacuum and vanish, or do we find an, uh, somewhere else for it to live? And the answer does seem at this point is going to be find somewhere else for it to live. So we'll touch on all sorts of different brands, some going ground up, others doing um, just major changes and overhauls in this country. But we'll start with a company called H2X uh, and its vehicle, which is the Warrego. Now, H2X started about last year or, or even just a little bit before that, made some really big noise about producing a brand new ute for Australia, in Australia, built by Australians for Australian conditions. His argument, the boss of H2X is a guy called Brendan Norman. His argument was that, yes, it would be slightly cheaper to build these vehicles offshore in another market, but we have good people in this country. We have the know-how and the knowledge. And if a country like Korea or South Korea where the wages and rates really aren't that dissimilar to our own, can find a way to build this massive manufacturing uh, industry, then we can essentially do the same. Now, mm-hmm. I would point out that he might, might have found it a little bit harder than he was initially anticipating because the, the all new vehicles that he was sort of talking about haven't eventuated yet. It's not to say that they won't. And instead, he's turned his attention to something called the Warrego, which is essentially a Ford Ranger-based ute. It's built using Ford's T6 platform, but converted to run on hydrogen fuel cells. And the idea being that he sees a big market in places like mines and other other areas where you might have to go underground. And the big mining companies are, of course, investing a lot of money in researching electric vehicles, hydrogen vehicles, zero emission vehicles, because they're just so much easier to have uh, in, in closed spaces. Yeah, there's a danger factor with uh, vehicles that run on petrol, and that's part of the reason that these brands, uh, these uh, mining companies, for example, have been running with diesel um, up until this point. But as you say, the future is looking more and more like it's electric and hydrogen. Uh, Mel, what do you make of the idea of a, a hydrogen version of a Ford Ranger, essentially? Oh, it sounds brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the the... The technology exists to make these cars kind of an ideal replacement for what we have now. The problem is you can't fuel them. But, you know, if you've got a, a mine, you can have your own on-site fueling station. Well, and, you know, all you're dribbling into the ground is a bit of water. There, yeah. is, um, there is one critical element here, though, that uh, which is why it's so popular with mining companies and not with mum and dads, is that uh, the, the Warrego starts, starts, at 189 grand and tops out at 250. That's a quarter of a million dollar range. Yeah. And we all said the Raptor was a bit exy. <laughs> <laughs> and we've all seen those mining utes that accidentally get stomped on by the big Tonka trucks. Yeah, you don't want to stomp on the of these babies. Exactly. So let me, let me just give you some basic specs here for a moment. So basically it, it, there's a 66 kilowatt or 90 kilowatt fuel cell powertrain, depending on the trim. You'll get up to 220 kilowatts of grunt. As I said, it'll cost you up to $250,000 to buy it. And I think you'll get about 450 or 500 kilometres in range before you refuel it. Refueling, as you rightly point out, though, Mal, is another uh, challenge. Yeah. But these cars kind of, you know, do a set job. They're not like, you know, mum and dad family cars that do a bit of everything. They just sort of crawl up and down mines all day long, you know, go down and have a look and turn around and come back. Exactly. So, so it's, it's a low, easier to design for that purpose. It's a low strain, low stress user case for these sorts of vehicles, essentially. 
Mal, do you have a counterpoint to that? Well, I think it's probably a high strain, actually, literally. But uh, simple use case, I think it's a, it's a standard function. Yeah, um, I want to have good um, shut lines because I've seen some of those, uh, those mining vehicles as they come out of the mines and find their way to the auctions and they are wrecked after 30 or 40,000 Ks. They are done. Oh, and they rust as well because there's all sorts of you know, stuff under the ground that you know, steel doesn't get along with. Now, we've seen um, other uh, approaches to these mining uh, ways of uh, thinking for the future, including electrified or electric um, land cruisers and so forth. This is obviously the next step, Chesto, don't you think? Yeah, and look, mate, to be honest, it's, it's not just the UD, either. So he wants to have a, a proper lineup of vehicles, all of which he swears will be made in Australia. In fact, he was investigating land in WA, Adelaide land, which some of us might find familiar uh, and a few other places. He, he's gonna, he wants to build uh, an SUV called the Snowy, which is kind of a hydrogen-powered CX-5-sized SUV, which we've only seen sketches so far, but it looks very cool. And he wants a, a fleet of uh, hydrogen-based commercial vehicles as well. So it's not just a – he doesn't plan on it being a one-trick pony. The Warrego is basically a toe in the water. And then eventually he wants to turn his attention to, like, ground-up utes, SUVs, and, like, commercial vehicles. Whether or not he can succeed at that is another story, but that's the point. Yeah. Can I just raise that I think his line about it being only slightly cheaper to build offshore is fascinating. Mm. Um, but I think what we need to consider here is that we're talking about a totally different uh, business to building hundreds of thousands of Commodores or hundreds of thousands of Falcons. Mm. This is a small-scale operation. Obviously, it adds up, you know, for South Korea, et cetera, when you're building on, you know, massive scale, uh, but clearly not to the small scale we're talking about here. Yeah, and we've seen, obviously, uh, hydrogen is starting to become a talking point again. Um, it was a while ago, and then it sort of faded away as the electric um, minefield sort of took took over. Um, and now we've got, uh, if you've seen on our YouTube channel or on our website, carsguide.com.au, we've done a comparison test between two hydrogen cars in Australia, the uh, Mirai from Toyota and the Hyundai Nexo, which is an SUV. So um, there is interest here and fleet interest in particular. Um, in Canberra, for example, there's now a yeah. filling station. And so there are um, opportunities for um, different organisations and government, for example, to be able to embrace this technology as a future technology that Australia could be using. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're a long way from seeing anything like the rollout in California where you can, you can pull up to a, a regular petrol station and just fill up in five minutes using hydrogen. Uh, but that that's something that we have to wait and see, I think, is the, is the point here. Yeah, and that, that test really taught all of us just how ready those two particular cars are to do normal things, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the packaging and all, and performance and refinement and uh, they just work over a yeah. long distance, over all sorts of terrain, uh, if you can refuel them. Yeah. It's worth putting out too, it's not just the cars guys either. I mean, we, we, produce, we have the capability to produce an awful lot of green hydrogen in this country with the appropriate investment, investment that's now starting to be made which means essentially not only would we be fuel independent, i.e. we wouldn't have to buy anything in from outside sources, but we would also have a new export market uh, and a green export market to replace the ones that are undoubtedly going to fade out in the coming years. So there's a lot to love about hydrogen if, if we can get it all to work. The only downside is with, with an EV, of course, the convenience of just charging it at home. We, we all With EVs, we all tend to focus so much on fast charging and charge rollouts and all that kind of stuff. 
But the reality is for the vast bulk of Australians, plugging it at home is all they'll ever need to do. They'll never need to visit a public charger. So, um, yeah, anyway, could go either way. And in fact, probably yeah. both ways, but it's um, interesting. And I, we should point out that the, the hydrogen solution seems to be ultimately best suited to what we love about diesels for long-distance travel, um, you know, carting big loads, et cetera, the eventual big solution to that, which pure electric is less so. And that's what um, a lot of uh, organisations around the country are looking at um, the future of hydrogen as a potential for, um, like you say, uh, transport uh, opportunities for trucks, for buses, and that sort of thing. And maybe that's the the bigger scale look at hydrogen. But let's move on to the next one, which is ACEV, um, which um, Chesto, behind you, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see Chesto's background um, on Zoom here is the ACE Ute, um, which is a little Ute. Uh, and that's ACE EV. Um, what is it? What's it about? And can we believe that this is going to happen? All right. So ACE EV Group is a South Australian-based company. Um, they, they have, to this date, made some really quirky-looking cars. So the vehicle behind me is the Ute, the, the Y-E-W-T. Ute. Um, and look, it's it's probably not going to crack mainstream acceptance in the near future, but it, it, it could look worse, though. It could look worse. could look a lot worse. There's because, plenty on the market right now that looks a lot worse. No? Which is uh, damning it with fake praise, isn't it? <laughs> I guess it could look worse. <laughs> The, uh, but anyway, so but their next big push, which is which is actually really exciting and interesting, is a, is a brand is a vehicle called the X1 Transformer, which is a van, um, but it's also a Ute. Uh, in fact, it's a number of different applications. It's the idea being that it's built on a modular architecture. Um, it can have a, a short wheelbase, long wheelbase, high and low roof van options, and even a Ute. It can be changed in in fifteen minutes, so it can be swapped from a you know a, 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 a low roof van to a Ute. In, in 15 minutes. Um, so it's this, basically it's this one van, this one vehicle to suit all of your transport needs that's totally adjustable, hence the transformer tag. Now- Because remember Inspector Gadget's car? Yeah. How yeah. we go between a like a coupe and a van, <laughs> the drop of a hat. Yep. Uh, six-year-old Mal is all over that. <laughs> well, I guess- This was 39-year-old Mal is also- <laughs> no, I mean, look, it is it is really cool and and more cool. They they reckon it's going to go into some form of pre production in November this year, and they're targeting a launch in April 2022. That's um, Australia. So it's that's ag- aggressive and exciting if it's to be believed. Um, you know that that idea of having a vehicle that is um, and can be purpose transformed to whatever purpose you need it for. Um, I've just seen a press release earlier today about um, Australia Post buying 20 um, Mitsubishi Fuso e-canter or whatever they're called, so the electric trucks. Um, So that's a truck uh, and it's that's it. It's that body. uh, That's all you're getting. Where something like this designed, developed, made for Australia, in Australia, um, potentially with the, the opportunity to appeal to um, big organisations like Australia Post, um, maybe not so much going to be the sort of thing that um, my dad, who's a tradie or the florist down the street, is going to um, think about. But it's also a really interesting approach because it does offer you flexibility. And, you know, there are um, a lot of fleets out there who will buy you know, a hundred vans and, you know, they're stuck with a hundred vans when, yeah. you know, what if they I'd, I'd argue perhaps for the smaller scale trading um, who currently has 
uh, you know, a Fuso, a Triton and a van, like this could enable you to have one car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you have a variety of functions in your business, uh, one car is better than three. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the, the transition in 15 minutes, that's fascinating. Yeah, so let me quote the boss there. This is ace boss Greg McCarvey. Um, who you, 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 I think you've kind of nailed it there, uh, Matty. He, he is targeting busy freight companies with, ma- with major distribution centres, saying that the X1 enables them to fit a pre-packed module straight onto its electric platform and be on its way in 15 minutes. That's one platform that can carry whatever cargo module is required, van or ute, high or low roof, so it is constantly earning its keep, whatever each individual freight mission may be. So, yeah, that's very much the plan. So it kind of reminds me of, like, you remember Better Place, which had the idea that you'd swap batteries out of your car and put yeah. it back in. This is taking the battery and swapping the body on top instead. It's, it's, it's a really clever in certain certain parameters, I think. But, but I, I, to me, that is the future of Australian manufacturing, is that you, you're never going to be able to create a company that has global presence like, like Ford or, or GM Holden, right? You, you're much better off creating a niche product that appeals to a very specific marketplace and serving that market because, because nobody else is. So the, the thought of Ace selling that ute, for example, next to a Ranger or a Hilux, is probably not going to fly. But, but specifying this vehicle for busy freight companies potentially could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's not just Inspector Gadget and Ace that have been pondering this solution. Uh, Mercedes has had a couple of cracks at it. Uh, most recently in 2018, was it the Vision Urbanetic? Yep. Uh, that was, you know, the skateboard chassis with multiple bodies. But, but also back in 1995, one that I've always been a fan of was the VRC, uh, where you could swap like the rear section of the body. There were four different, uh, four different configurations, ute, convertible, coupe and wagon. Hmm. Uh, love it what a dream the magic is that like this is what car companies already do like if, if you go to an EV an EV, like Rivian for example or anyone with a scale yeah. they already have this capability they take off the R1T top put on the R1S body and sell it the only difference is they do it for you this time yeah. you do it yourself yeah. and it's done once yeah. now, I suppose it comes back to like we need to consider remember when they introduced the, the smart for two and it was you know oh you can swap all the body panels in whatever and you know, personalise it to, to suit your mood. I can't imagine many people actually did that. That that sort of approach, I think, was really good in um, cities like Paris where you, you get bumped, you get dented, yeah. people kick your doors when there's protests because there's always protests in Paris, you know. So this is... Oh, turn them upside down in those, don't they? Yeah, well, exactly. Or set them on fire. Um, just <laughs> You know how they have that day every year where they, can't, they light all these cars on fire? Um, so I think that's um, maybe a good uh, point to move to our next vehicle, Chesto. Yes. Now... It's let's talk about building your dreams yes. or next port. Um, explain that one for us. So this is interesting, actually. So, so BYD is a, a gigantic Chinese EV manufacturer who's partnered with a brand in Australia called Nextport uh, to sell their vehicles down under. Now, the, the difference is it's not what he says. That this is uh, Nextport boss Luke Todd. He points out that it's not. He hasn't got a distribution agreement with BYD. He has invested in the company, and as for return of that investment, they've given him access to a right-hand drive, drive production line in China, which is, so he can kind of alter vehicles as he wishes for for our market. So that's step one, right? But step two is that he wants to BYD to build a Ute uh, based on an EV over there called the Tang. 
um, that that would that it, he sees it being built in Australia. In fact, he's already invested land in Mossvale in New South Wales that he wants to become the BYD manufacturing hub, and he wants. So that's to- an hour and a half south of Sydney. Yeah, yeah exactly. And he wants it not just to do the U, but to do a range of light commercial vehicles as well um, that will be, you know, built here in Australia for Australian conditions. He describes the U as not being, he's, he's seen prototypes of it. He describes it as not being as wild as the Tesla Cybertruck. In fact, it'll be desirable, practical, and a very spacious dual cab pickup or Ute. Uh, more, it's more in the in in the vein of the Rivian R1T than it is a classical Holden or Ford, but it's a luxury vehicle that happens to have the carrying capacity at the back. So his his target is to build those vehicles in Mossvale, New South Wales, uh, as well as a whole bunch of other BYD branded stuff. Now the reason I say it's interesting is because when I wrote this story, a few of the comments have said, "Well, BYD is not really you know manufacturing in Australia; that's a Chinese company." To which I pointed out, you know. Well, GM's not an Australian company either, not Norse Ford. So yeah. what's the difference? Um, Toyota, Mitsubishi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, Sadie's Volvo, yeah. Volkswagen. Yeah. yeah. There's been a few over the years that um, haven't necessarily been Australian companies, mm. but well, look, using Australian labour and Australian uh, know-how and, you know, expertise. And that's what this is all about, this, this renaissance, I guess, of the Australian automotive industry, if... That's what's going to happen. I think the that idea of having a, um, I guess having an Aussie in Australia understand what is working here, what's missing from the market, and how um, he can basically capitalize on BYD's uh, know-how and expertise in building electric cars because that's what they do. They do that on mass in China. They're one of the most influential and important brands in that market. So it makes perfect sense. The interesting part as well is that um, there is undeniably a, a, a made-in-China hangover in Australia, despite the fact that we all use iPhones, et cetera, that, that are made there. But, you know, people still tend to look down their nose a little bit about at Chinese manufactured cars. And this yep. neat sidesteps that issue. Sure, it's Chinese technology and Chinese design, but we manufacture them right here in Mossvale, Australia. So it mm. does kind of, uh, it's a, a, shrew, a clever move on his part if he can pull it off. Yeah. Yeah, I also really like the point of difference with the you know the luxury vehicle with load carrying capacity, um, mm. which is sounds a bit like what Sangyong has done with the Musso, mm. uh, which is fantastic. You know, it's yeah. it's great when people think outside the square in the Ute segment. You know, yeah. we, it's great that Mazda makes one that is you know good looking rather than aggressive. Uh, Sangyong, you know, let's let's have an electric one too. Maybe. Um- Let's consider the uh, Mercedes X Class and the success it had. Um, but funnily what enough, what was its point of difference, though, aside from uh, a badge? Uh, it was a luxury vehicle, Mel. Um, <laughs> well, uh, premium Ute. I actually yeah. drove behind one yesterday. I had to double take. Is that a, yeah, it is hey, you know what? Um, just just off topic for a moment. Um, uh, as some of you probably know, we like to scour the classifieds and see what prices used cars are um, attracting. Um, X Classes have shot up by. $20,000 in the last two years because of the COVID effect. So t- two years ago, you could get a base model X-Class for twenty nine grand when they were clearing out the stock. Now the cheapest ones around are closer to 50. So that's an interesting point, but it's got nothing to do with what we're talking about. So let's move on. Um, now an important... Uh, hang on. The same thing's happened to all the other youths though as well. That, well, yeah. Um, like they were Triton 4x4s for 34000 drive away. Now they're $50,000 drive away. So, and I and LDVs as well, LDV T60, I was saying yesterday on the, on the morning chat that we have every day uh, that, you know, 
They were 32,000, 30,000 drive away for a four by four. Now people are selling three or four year old ones with 100,000 Ks for $27,000. Good on them. Uh, mate, hard to find a car at the moment. Can I take us just for one down one more little tangent? Sure. So speaking of this BYD, you, which I clearly haven't seen, but I have seen the Rivian R1T in the middle at a few motor shows around the world. It's awesome. Like it's mm-hmm. genuinely a super cool product. I do think this is a, pop, a topic for another pod, but we are on the dawn of a, of a sort of pickup truck slash revolution in Australia and around the world because there is some seriously cool stuff coming, most of it electrified. Yep, 100%. There's a Rivian now, in Australia at the moment too. Yes. So it's starting to feel real. There's um there's one here for testing, isn't it? Yeah, there was some uh some in New Zealand as well, um and I think there's one here as well. Um and you know I'm seeing a fair few uh, on social media. People are starting to see um those vehicles around the world. Um and you know I don't think there's been a, a buzz around an electric product that is actually real for quite a while. You know we've heard uh, obviously the Cybertruck is now delayed again and. You know, the world is just getting sick of Elon lying, I think. So it's um, when we see a, a brand like Rivian, which has got backing from big brands, um, yeah. it's going to be huge. And, you know, it's been a long time coming, but there's a good vibe about Rivian from the product to, you know, the the, the ownership experience. So and the fact there's plenty of room for that. <laughs> brands are kind of conceitable. You're doing it better than us. So we'll just buy, we'll buy into you rather than do our own. It's, yeah. That's a yeah. Pretty big wrap. Yeah. Yeah. Now, an important note: we're not all we're not talking about complete vehicle manufacturing in every single instance here. Um, there's a couple of organisations currently uh, rebuilding cars to suit our market, or um, adding on to cars, um, like Prem Car, for example. Uh, Finessing, perhaps. Finessing, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess that you could say that, like Prem Car, they are vital to um, meeting a market appeal that a brand might not otherwise be able to meet. Yeah. So, for example, the uh, Navara work that Prem Car is doing, uh, Pro Forex and, and Pro Forex Warrior, as it might be known. Um, this is uh, another interesting way that brands are embracing Australian um, abilities, capabilities and asking them to basically tailor a vehicle to suit our needs. What do you reckon, Chesto? Mate, I reckon this is probably the most exciting thing we'll talk about today, not least of which because it's real and now and happening as we speak, but also because it is such a great use of Australian engineering engineering ingenuity to create these vehicles that, that really are sort of tailored for our market. So Premcar is one and Walkinshaw is another, and we'll talk about both in a moment. But I just want to make the point that one of the issues I think with Ford and Holden towards the end of their tenure in Australia is that they were these big lumbering organizations beset by bureaucracy, part of these gigantic global supply chains. And so as a result, they turned like cruise ships, you know, like you could not just pivot to meet market demand overnight. Things were years in advance, right? Whereas companies like Walkinshaw and Premcar have this agility to change stuff overnight. So if we suddenly have a hankering for full-sized American utes, here they are. If we want you know, Mustangs or Corvettes, which I know are right-hand drive now, don't get me wrong, but if we want Camaros, for example, here's, here it is for you. If we want a, a, a Nissan Navara that's better suited to crossing Australian deserts, here's a warrior. Uh, to me, I just think that is, that, that's the ultimate now in Australian manufacturing. It's so cool. They're cars that are made for us by Australians in Australia. Yeah, I, I uh, for one, never really thought that I'd see a Volkswagen product fettled by Walkinshaw, for example, yeah. and that this is um, a hot demand product 
for the first version of the W580. Then there's the off-roady version coming as well. So they're onto something. And I think there's an appeal to a, um, a regular buyer who wants something that isn't just a regular Amarok or a regular Ranger yeah. or a Bar or whatever it may be. And lots of it too. And like these utes are made for, you know, not for Australia. They're made for markets, you know, international markets that have uh, generally they they tend to use them for work more than us and we're kind of unique in wanting them for, for play and performance and, you know, beauty and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so we're, you know, a mere minnow in, in the, the, the whole package for an Amarok or a, or a Navara, but these Australian organisations, you know, uh, enable them to tailor it to our requirements exactly and make a better product yeah yeah and they employ hundreds of people across those brands um, yeah. engineers and you know everything from everything you would find in a regular car company these these companies employ and like most things in australia it starts with utes but it won't end there so nissan as we know is already making noises about warrior-fying some of its suv lineup it it, it might start with brands like the, the vehicles like the amarok and the and the navara but it won't end there we'll we'll end up with vehicles that really across the board that are, that are made. yeah it's a bit like the um it's also related to the the local suspension calibration that we've we see from hyundai and kia you know just these simple changes can make the car so much better suited to us. They've been influential, um, mm. I would say, in transforming the perceptions around some of those brands because they they turned, you know, we remember the bad old days of the Hyundais and Kias that um, drove like they were made for Korean tastes, which or weren't cars. anywhere, yeah. they were nothing like what we have now. You know, the expertise that Australians have fed back to the, the ecosystem has changed global tunes for some of these vehicles. And that's a massive step forward. Now, I think it's time we move on to uh, our garage, guys. So um, good chat so far, but let's talk about some of the cars that we, well, the Aussie made cars or Aussie built cars that we own or still own. Mel, um, we've only got a couple of minutes, so we can't go right. into all of them. Uh, but you start us off with the two that you still own. Okay, I'll try to speak really quickly then. Uh, I've got two, one of them's right behind me, uh, which is my EH Holden, which uh, was my first car and I still have it. Uh, I still have a K20 Corolla, uh, which was... Uh, manufactured by uh, AMI, which turned into Toyota Australia. Uh, I've had another five KE Corollas back in the day. Uh, I've had a WB Statesman. I've had an NC Fairlane. And I should point out that none of these cars I bought because they were made in Australia, but they were the right cars for me at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, I mean. Was that, that quick enough? That was great. And I think that's, um, that's a really good uh, way of putting it because, you know, you didn't, it wasn't like you were hankering. For an Australian car, in a lot of instances, you were you were buying what you wanted, or what your mates had, or you know, like it was what was available and what was cheap. Exactly, like could you have afforded to spend 30 40 percent more on something that was Japanese or European? Maybe not. So you went with the cheap Aussie one because there were plenty of them. Um, Chester, ironically though, can I just add to the end of that? Yeah, like the the the, the shift in values we've seen since the end of local manufacturer has meant that uh, I can no longer aspire to buy one of these locally made products, but I bought a Mercedes for a fraction of what the equivalent era old would have cost me last year. Yep. So fascinating times. Definitely. Chesto, what have you had? 
Well, so people on this pod, I'll keep this brief as well. People on this pod have heard me say before that uh, my first car was a Datsun 260Z, still my favourite ever car, absolutely adored it. But it's it's true, but not entirely true. My, my actual first ever car was a Holden Camira that my, my father, who loved a bargain, was was at a uh, auction house and, and it, it was just post one of those ferocious hailstorms across Sydney. And this thing looked like it had been parked at the end of a driving range. Every panel had these huge, like, golf ball-sized dents from front to back, right? It looked – it was absolutely haggard. Anyway, I bought it when I was about 15 because he liked the bargain. And then I was—I looked at it in the garage every day, counting down the days until I could get my licence. When it was finally time, we went to get it registered. And the bloke just went, mate, you've got no chance. Put it in the bin. So I'd stared at this thing for 12 months and then put it straight into the bin. Uh, then I had a 260Z and then somewhere along the line, I also had a VC Commodore, which I, I, I absolutely adored. It, it was homicidal in a lot of ways, but I, uh, but I loved it. I trust it had six cylinders, Chester? Yes, it did. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's good. Yeah, so... Tyres um, at the back that are, are as bald as I'm about to be. They <laughs> absolute death trap. <laughs> uh, look, I think anyone who owned a rear-wheel drive Holden product um, at any point during their formative years knows exactly the, that situation. So We um, found it quite formative. Yeah, exactly. You learn to steer when you don't have uh, any grip. So um, my first car is the car that you'll see behind me. If you're watching on the YouTube, um, that's uh, a 1965 HD Holden wagon. Now, I didn't really want that car. Um, I showed up with dad at the uh, dealership in Fishwick where I'd seen a VK Commodore that I wanted. Um, and the VK was, you know, it was a really nice car, really clean. Um, I don't know whether I believed the odometer, but so be it. Um, and so I, I said, oh, I think I want that one. Dad was like, no, nah, I think you want that HD next to it. And I said, oh, all right, okay. So he convinced me by saying we'll go halves. Um, and at this point, I'm 14 years old. So, you know, it's it's a dream come true to have a first car well before you can actually legally drive it. Um, and I also sold it before I could legally drive it. So we did a, a bunch of work to it. We retrimmed the interior with VN Commodore Executive trim uh, because my uncle's uh, VN Commodore got broken into. And so... Um, it got written off. Someone smashed up the outside, but kept the inside fine. So we took his front seats and a bit of the trim out of the back seat and stuff. Anyway, long story short, my first car was a HD. I've since uh, followed that up with a VL Commodore Executive. Um, mm. Then I owned a $500 uh, Gemini, which was a huge mistake. Um, and I made 500 bucks on that when I sold it. It then got crashed into a rock outside Cooma, where I was from. Um then, yeah, years later, um, found a great HR wagon, which I loved. Again, I sold it, but should have kept it. Um, it. It would have been worth 10, maybe 20 times what I paid for it now. Um, yeah, four and a half grand I paid for it, and it was immaculate. It was awesome. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Also, I was the co-owner of a KC Ford Laser Gear, which was... Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, the carburetor problems we had with that car. Anyway, now let's have a look at some feedback that we've received. Um, now, there was we're going to keep this pretty brief as well. There was plenty of people saying congrats on the 200 episodes, and we thank you for sticking with us. Um, if you've been here since the start, that's great. We hope you stick around for even more because there's plenty more podcast chat to come. Um, and we know that our 
whole cast special was a lot for some people to follow. I think all of us here will agree that we struggled to follow it at times. It was an experiment. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Yeah, so thank you for sticking with it if you did watch it. Now, I will call out just a few of the comments. Um, Someone said they didn't have a username, so maybe they were just an anonymous commenter. A whole team, God, it's hard enough to understand what's being said when there's only three people to talk over each other at the same time. You add the whole team and it ends up sounding like seagulls on the the seagulls from Finding Nemo. if you don't know what I'm looking at, uh, talking about, look it up on YouTube. Um, Grudlin74 said, congrats on 200 episodes. Great achievement. It was very blokey. And we noticed that uh, was uh, the sausage fest. Um, and then, yeah, the uh, the lovable Peter Panousis also said, great show as always, lads. Shame Nadal didn't make an appearance. And Nadal being the uh, most represented female of the Cars Guide team. Sorry, we didn't get her along. We will aim to get Nadal along on a podcast in the future. And we'd love to hear if there's anyone else that you'd like to see on the podcast because we'd love to give you what you want. Except for maybe Elvis. We can't get him on. Uh, Look, I think JC can pull some strings there. Uh, Um, Good point. (laughs) Okay, that's it, guys. We are done. So thank you for joining us, Mal. And thank you, Chesto. Uh, Keep up those stories, mate. um, They're getting the clicks. Thanks again, (laughs) always, to Mr. Pritchard um, in the production suite. Today, he's wearing a genuine Holden Racing Team driving suit. And it appears that he's also got a new tattoo on his forehead of, you know, of that kid peeing on a Ford, you know, that, that sticker that you see on he's got that tattooed on it. It's, it, he's an interesting character. That's so now, Richard. It is. Um, and, you know, Penrith has really impacted him. Um, make sure you have a chat with us on Facebook and Instagram or email us at car- comments at carsguide.com.au. And it'll help us out a lot if you are watching on YouTube to give us a thumbs up share this video with your friends, subscribe and hit the bell icon so you can stay up to date with all of our latest stuff. No joke this week, but James has had some time off to come up with an absolute humdinger for next week. So stay tuned. Thanks guys. Thank you everyone. Stay safe.